Welcome back, and a big welcome to the PAW. Isn't it wonderful to be experiencing the Holy Spirit right alongside of the women of the PAW? Right? So let's remember that they're here in the room with us right now, and a special love to Val Micklefield, and I see John there too. <laughs> yeah. Eavesdropping. Um, I just want to remind you too that if you miss a class, that's fine. All of the all of the sessions are uploaded to the uh, GatewayWinnipeg.com website. You click on the blueprints link, and it will take you to the audios, and you can catch up if you missed a session, just so you don't miss anything. Um, and I, I just want to remind you too that not everything you hear from every life that we're touching or teaching on at Blueprints is going to be something you go, I totally relate to Sarah, or I totally relate to Hagar. But that's not the point. The point is that we are learning about what it is to be image bearers and azares, and our goal is, is to gain insight into who God's made us, but really our goal is to gain insight into who God is. Because remember, how many theologians are in the room? So, oh, not everybody was at the first Blueprints meeting, clearly. <laughs> How many theologians are in the room? That's better. Because theology is the study of God, and that's just precisely what we're doing here tonight. And so we are studying God, and we're particularly studying God and how he relates to women, how he loves us, how he loves us, how he loves us, which is why we started with that song tonight. And also, it's not all about us. He is wanting us to understand how he relates to women in general so that we can relate to other women as image bearers and azares and relate to other people in general, men, children, everybody, as the women that he's created us to be. So last month we learned about Sarah, and we, um, we talked a lot about some of the issues of her life, the things that she struggled with, the silence that she experienced when she was you know, in relation to her understanding of God, the anguish of barrenness, the disappointment of years and years of waiting, years and years and years and years of waiting. And the fact that God, when he spoke, spoke only to her husband. She went through some very difficult circumstances that were potentially violating and risky. She had no address to call home. And we looked at the broken ways in which she responded to her pain. And then we saw how her life and her heart changed that moment when the Lord spoke directly, personally to her, and she began to understand that God knew her. And if God knew her, then those promises were real. And she received within herself, Hebrews 11 tells us, the power to conceive. That was the moment that her life changed. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the young Egyptian slave woman, Hagar, who was pressed into service by Sarai, who was still Sarai at that point. It was her name. And she was the fix for what Sarah, Sarai perceived God wasn't fulfilling. And we kind of call, Carol and James calls her sort of that she was invisible. She was like an invisible person. And I don't know about you, but um, I'm sure that probably every woman in this room can relate to feeling invisible at some time in their lives. Would that be true? at some point in your life. And um, one, uh, Deborah Jones was talking to me about this a couple of Sundays ago, and I just, she wrote a poem when she was 17, and she emailed it to me, and I just asked her to read that for us, just to kick off this morning. Come on up, Deborah. This is my darling friend, Deborah. Deborah wrote this poem when she was 17, and I suspect many of us could relate to it. Here we go. Alone. I stand with them and yet I'm not. I stand alone. Yes, I'm one in their number, but I don't belong. I stand here alone in a world of my own. To be one of them, the hope, a chance now gone. But why? I can't really say. I wish I knew. To question, assume an answer, and then to wonder. In ignorance, but not knowing what I should do. To step timidly forward, yet afraid to blunder. But where there is a will, there's always hope. Having to accept it, that's half the fight. 
This is a burden of mine with which I must cope. In the end, everything is bound to be all right. Happily, though, there's only one of me. Think for a while. Maybe you'll agree. Amen. For the record, Deborah's not invisible to us, is she? That was beautiful. Thank you, Deborah. Hagar was invisible. Carolyn James said that she was a lost soul stuck on the wrong side of the racial divide, uncomfortable in her own skin, trapped within a cultural system that stripped her of her rights, her dignity, and her freedom. We've added insult to injury by allowing her to lie flat on the pages of our Bibles as some lifeless cardboard character, just a messy complication in Sarah's plot. For me, that line is one of the best lines in the book. That flat cardboard character. I liked it so much, I created one. Can the paw see this? Hopefully they can see this. This is a picture of Hagar. I got her off the internet. And I just did this to prove a point. Because for how many of you is Hagar this flat cardboard character in the Bible? That you haven't actually really considered her. And she's just like something from a Sunday school flannel graph. And in this picture, she's fleeing from um, Sarai, who is beating on her. But the fact is, that's really what she was for me, a flat cardboard character lying on the pages of my Bible. In fact, I was speaking to a pastor recently who said that he did a a thing in his church recently with the children, and um, they were talking about the Galatians 4 thing about, there's a passage in Galatians 4 that talks about Hagar kind of being the allegorical mother of those in slavery, and Sarah being the allegorical mother of those in freedom and promise. And there's a part where it says, we'll cast out the slave woman. And so this pastor said he took those kids and they all took their cardboard Hagar and cast out the Hagar. And I looked at him and I said, so you vilified Hagar to your children in your church? And he said, yeah, I guess I did. I'm like, whoa, you got to come to blueprints. Because we are going to bring her to life tonight. She is alive. I mentioned that already. Isn't that an extraordinary thought? Just think about that for a minute. Does that amaze you as much as it amazes me? She's alive, living in eternity. And that's a wonderful thing that we can, we can actually chew over her life the years that she lived on this earth. But we're going to bring her to life. We know nothing of her background except that she was a slave. Most biblical scholars believe that Hagar was part of Pharaoh's gift to Abraham when he stumbled over that self-preservation issue in his life and he tried to pass his wife off as his sister. And there was bad things happening because God didn't like that. And so um, Pharaoh confronted Abraham and got rid of them. And when he did, he gave them gifts just to get God off of his case, right? So Hagar was really an acquisition during that time. And Pharaoh gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And did you notice the utter debasement of humanity in that sentence? The female servants of which included Hagar, are listed here right between the sheep, oxen, and male donkeys and the female donkeys and camels. She was a possession. She was property placed on the same level as the animals. They had value to the people who owned them, but they had no inherent worth. Who was she? Did she have a family? Had she been loved? Had she loved others? Had she been abandoned or had she been sold into slavery? We know enough about slavery to know this. Her life was not her own, and her circumstances were completely out of her control. She experienced the trauma of being permanently separated from the only people and country that she had ever known and handed over to perfect strangers. We don't even know if she spoke their language because this is after the Tower of Babel when all the languages were confused. Hagar is even a Hebrew word. And so it's quite possible that her name was even changed by Abram and Sarai. 
The actual word means flight or to flee, which is interesting because that's precisely what she did and she fulfilled her name. But inherent within the meaning of her name is this word sojourner or stranger. So remember we talked about Abram who was childless and his name meant father and every time they called him Abram, it was reinforced that he really wasn't a father. Well, Hagar, it was reinforced that every time she was named, it was like, hey, stranger, you're not one of us. Here's a little visual from the Book of Negroes that CBC put on that I'd like, I'd like to show you, um, not because this was her, but Hagar did come from Africa. She was Egyptian. And she would have experienced something very similar. And this is something from the slave trade in the U.S. during that time. And I just want to posture you to get yourself out of the cardboard Hagar and begin to think about what was her life like having been uprooted from her people and placed with strangers she didn't know. You must live. Remember your mama and papa. One day, I will go back home across the big river. Come! Come! Come, stay close. And if they separate us, we will find each other. Next up, we have a young buck. Teeth all in, solid bones, gonna muscle up real good. Do I hear? Five pounds sterling. Five, thank you, sir. And, and six. And seven. And, and I have eight pounds. Eight pounds sterling. Eight pounds sterling for a fine young buck. Any advance tonight? Eight, eight pounds. I have eight, eight pounds sterling. Any advance tonight for a fine young buck? Gone once, twice, fair one, and sold with gentlemen with a black hat. Aminata Jayolo! Chikota Yolo! Next up, we have this young wench still growing. Make a fine field worker. Be making babies in no time at all. Do I hear nine pounds? Nine pounds sterling for this fine field hand. Nine pounds sterling. You double your money in a year, quadruple it once she's ripe for breeding. Nine pounds sterling. Five pounds sterling. Five pounds sterling. Five pounds sterling in the advance on five. Five pounds, I have five. Once, twice, fair warning. So, to Mr. Robinson Appleby for five pounds sterling. Borrowed another century, sir. And next up, we have a mother and child combo. Definitely a breeder proof in all. Do I hear? 12 pounds sterling. 11. 10 pounds. 10 pounds sterling. Thank you, sir. I had 10 pounds and 11. Thank you, sir. 11. Do I? 12. I had 12. It's actually gut-wrenching to think that this is reality. This happened. We don't know Hagar's story. But what we do know is that she was a slave. She was out of control. And she'd been separated and detached from her people. And I've asked Wendy Park to come and just share with us for five minutes about what it's like. Wendy, Wendy is wonderful. Wendy works with orphans. She, um, she has fostered children. Um, she is, is a force to be reckoned with in our city, galvanizing people and to see the orphaned, the lost, the detached children. And so I'm going to just ask her to frame this up for us, what this might have been like. It's hard for me to watch that and think of the past because my experience is this is the present and we have Hagar's among us that are not attached. They are separated and um, they've lived with us. And I know right now it's a beautiful sunny night and there will be men picking them up for five pounds. And this is right in our city. 
those, those girls, I know this isn't all my notes, and I'm going to get in five minutes, I promise. But there's girls, after seeing this, I just can't stop saying it, but there's girls right now that are being sold, and we don't always see them. Sometimes I fall in the category of being a Sarah, of letting it go and seeing them invisible. But I can tell you, I've dropped these Hagars off just blocks from here. They live in our neighborhoods. Attachment. She asked me to talk about attachment. And this is something that's very near and dear to my heart because we see it so pivotal in our society today. Um, Attachment. How many of you are familiar with attachment theory? Yeah, we've got quite a few out there. A lot of moms here. We, We... We've got that bond. Attachment is like when you hear a baby crying and all the nursing moms start lactating, right? That's attachment. You're like, you feel that bond with that baby. Or attachment is when you're talking amongst a sea of people, but that child, your child, can pick you out and know exactly where to go because they hear your voice. That's attachment. And it's a theory that came not too long ago in, in history um, by a fellow named uh, John Bowlby. And normally we speak hours on this, and I'm bringing it to five minutes, so, so I'll be brief. Um, but essentially what it is, it's children need a secure base to grow and thrive. And attachment is an affectionate bond between mother and child, or parent and child, or an affectionate relationship. And it's, it's knowing that I, as an attached child of my mom, for example, I am secure, I am safe, I am loved, I am cherished. And really it's nothing new because actually science has just caught up with God. It's talked about that in the Bible the whole time. God is being our father and he wants longs for an attached relationship with us where we are secure and precious and safe in his arms. And that's basically what attachment is. It's having that connection being seen by our Heavenly Father, being seen by your mom or your father. And some of you might not have had that experience, granted. And so we struggle as adults to know how to attach to our child. And and we work with a lot of foster and adoption. We also advocate a lot for family restoration. And one of the key things in there is a lack of attachment. When a child is secure, they can be nurtured in healthy relationships. And so the, the essence of this is that you, in attachment, you want to be belong. Everybody has, and it's biblical, we have a, a desire to belong and not to be a belonging. You know your child is securely attached when you don't just see them as your things, your property, and you scuttle them out like they're your property, and you try to teach them strictly, and this is how you behave, but you don't really have that heart-to-heart connection. But when you see them as nurtured and belonging, that is attachment. And so... Um, so what happened in Hagar's life? We, there's so many questions we don't know, right? Um, and yet, surely we can see clearly by, by the example of Abraham and Sarah that she was a belonging. Are we agreed on that? She was a belonging. And when she had been used or when she was abused, she was rejected into the desert and she no longer belonged as a belonging. But the beautiful thing about attachment here is God is sovereign. And God saw the invisible. And God saw and connected with Hagar. And it's the only time in the Hebrew Bible that I've seen that in the Hebrew Bible that God connected with a woman in a divine way, had a divine encounter, and gave a blessing. It could be equated to the Abrahamic blessing, but to Hagar. And that is pretty significant. And so when I see, so that fills me with hope. So when I see women out there on the street or, or those that come to be, become part of our home, I see hope because God is connecting to them. They might have had the worst childhood. They might have been ripped out of their homes. Just think about our own history. We have Hagar's all around us with the residential schools, ripped out of your homes. And we have generation after generation of Ishmael's being born into the system and 80,000 children in our care that are not attached to their, their biological parents. We have them all around us. Um, but I see hope because God can reach into those areas and raise them up to a standard that even the Sarah's cannot see and bring them to a place of hope and healing and connection. Amen. Thank you so much. I think that's a really powerful phrase. Hagar was a belonging, 
but she didn't feel that she belonged. And she would have carried that sense of detachment with her into that place. She was denied that love and attachment to her family, and she became a tool of a desperate woman who forced her into surrogacy. And so this young woman, Hagar, was forced to sleep with the 85-year-old Abraham in the hopes of becoming pregnant without any say in the matter. Carolyn James paints the cultural picture of the day where polygamy was acceptable, and the practice we just mentioned wasn't unheard of. But the fact was, this was, although this was acceptable, it didn't lessen for Hagar the sense that she was being used for someone else's ends. And this just got very personal because this was no love story for Hagar. She had to submit to this act of an attempt at procreation for the utilitarian thing that it was. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. And then she wouldn't have even been allowed to consider that that baby was hers. That baby would have belonged to Sarah. She was basically just the baby machine, a means to an end, a tool, no love, no affection, no worth. And Carolyn James makes a really good point in the book because the writer of Genesis, who was actually Moses, um, really creates this aura of his own disapproval of this act of darkness when he says, he, he, he hearkens back to some of the same grammar he used when he wrote about Adam and Eve. And it said, Eve took the fruit and gave it to her husband. And Moses used the same language. Sarah took the Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband. Hagar was the lonely, detached, isolated, voiceless pawn in the whole project. And she was invisible. Of course, she did conceive, but the child would not even be considered her own. And Sarah, as we learned last week, did not get all the warm feels that she thought she would when she considered this project. Instead, her anger was uncorked as she began to notice a subtle difference in Hagar. This young slave who would serve her master with downcast eyes, because that was appropriate behavior, now dared to sometimes look at her. And there was just a look, just that glint, just that little triumph I'm pregnant and you're not. I'm having Abraham's baby and you can't. And then she looked down. But it was unmistakable. And Sarah saw it and it gutted her. It just churned in her as she began to notice it a little bit more and a little bit more and it was just slightly brazen. And there would be a smirk an unmistakable look of scorn and then outright smugness as she served her mistress. Contempt, the Bible says in Genesis 16, that Hagar despised Sarah. And that was evident. And so Sarah, uh, what, what Hagar would do is she would just kind of stick it to her, subtly but powerfully. And with her background, you can almost imagine why. She had zero attachment to Sarah, didn't she? Let's just take a minute here and think about this capacity of women to stick it to each other. This is a really powerful force I'm talking about here, and I wonder if you can relate. We have this capacity to just look at another woman a certain way or adopt a posture a little joke with a little tiny barb, a little Facebook snub. It's so subtle, and we are oh so good at it. We got trained in high school, but our problem is sometimes we never quite graduate from high school, and we're still using those old things. Is there anyone in the room who has not been on the giving or receiving end? of that kind of contempt, jealousy, competition between yourself and another woman. I notice there's not a hand going up. I certainly have been on the giving and receiving end of that. Sometimes it's not what we do, but what we don't do or say that speaks louder. The ignoring, the snubbing, the ghosting. 
and we can be really, really mean. And I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to convict us just as we go. Lord, is, is that me? Is there something you want to just talk to me about right now? But we see this relationship between Sarah and Hagar. And that, tr- that behavior in Hagar triggered the fury of Sarai. And she unleashed such anger that she began to beat Hagar. And Hagar fled for her life. That word, treat her harshly, is the Hebrew word tianeha, which is stripes that are hard and usage that is to bring down the body and humble the mind. It's the actual word that was used when it was describing the Israelite slaves in Egypt and how the Egyptians treated the Israelites. And we know that was a harsh burden. It's the same word here for how Sarah treated Hagar. Imagine what this would have looked like as Hagar fled into the desert. Now she was not only invisible, but completely off-grid. And nowhere in my Bible does it say that they sent out a search party for this woman who was carrying Abraham's child. She had no anklet, she had no tracking device, and they didn't send out the dogs. Even out here in the wilderness, no one cared. No one except for God. For the first time in recorded scripture, and that makes it very important because it's precedent setting, anytime you hear something for the very first time in the Bible, you need to take a good look at it. It's an important thing. But it says here that the angel of the Lord appeared. Now, this is not a messenger. This isn't like God sent Gabriel or Michael. This phrase actually means the angel of the Lord. It was a pre-incarnate person of Jesus Christ. It was him. It was him before he came in the person of Jesus Christ. He appears a few times, but this was the very first time he appeared. Not to a king. Not to an important person, not to a prophet, but to an Egyptian runaway slave, disposable, invisible, pregnant girl. Sarah's project gone bad. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were God, I might have not gone after her. Because remember, God's plan was Isaac, the promised child. And this was Sarah's idea, the arm of the flesh. So God could have easily just wrote her off and said, well, you know, that's what happens when you use the arm of the flesh and you take things into your own control. And that would have been a very convenient way of getting rid of the problem and the problem child. But God didn't do that. And I am so profoundly moved by this statement in Genesis 16, 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. He found her. There was one who went out in pursuit. The fact that he found her indicates he was looking. And he addresses her by name. Here's another moment where this is the first time, just like, like Wendy, just like Wendy said, this was the first time that the Lord addressed a woman by name. He didn't even do that to Sarah. He would refer to Sarah to Abraham, but not to her. But he called her Hagar. So she was on her way into the wilderness, and we know from Exodus that this was a a terrible, terrible place to be. Moses took the Israelites there after they crossed the Red Sea, and they didn't see water for three days. This was an absolute surefire suicide mission that Hagar was on. The Lord finds her and he speaks. And imagine her surprise when all alone in the wilderness she hears the stranger call her name. Was he at a distance? Did he call to her from a distant palm tree, all stiff and authoritative-like, and say, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'll tell you now, I would have been terrified. I think she would have been terrified and said, who is this man? How does he know my name? And is he out to kill me? But I don't believe for a moment that that's how this happened. I believe in this encounter, it was just the opposite. And I want to take a moment and just frame this scene 
And I'd like us to actually step right into the pages of the word of God. Because my belief is that what we do when we read our Bible is we look at those little black marks on the white page and we just gloss over them. We read them and we don't take them in and we don't step into them. Remember, the word is what? It's living. It's alive. It's actually active. The word of God is living and active. It's always happening. It's always new. Every time you pick it up, you can pick up the same passage every day for three months, read the same thing, and it'll say something different because it's living. And every time you step in, God wants to talk to you because he's real and he's the word. So what I'd love to do with you just for a minute is to get you to step into the passage and engage with what it says and engage with Jesus in the text and even engage with Hagar in the text. And I want us to use our imaginations because our imaginations are part of our minds and we're told to worship the Lord with our minds. So our imaginations are a good thing. He made them. It's okay. And I want us to forget this. Please. Just strip it out of your head. And if you're comfortable, I just want you to close your eyes. So she's in the wilderness, and there's a spring. And she's looking at the spring, and she's thinking, how can I drink enough to last me for the rest of this journey? I know I'm going to die. And suddenly, she feels a presence she feels human proximity, some kind of proximity. It's like a, it's a charge in the atmosphere. It's just different. It's different. And she's stirred, but she doesn't know. And then she hears something, and she, she's a little bit rattled. And then she hears her name spoken, and her eyes just flip up. She's alarmed because she's looking at a stranger, but the stranger knows her name, and she feels suddenly vulnerable. But she wasn't used to hearing her name spoken in that tone. There was no harshness in it, no rebuke, no disapproval, no judgment. She'd heard her Hebrew name spoken by Sarai in imperative commanding tone, and lately she'd heard it spoken so harshly as if it were a curse, and it made her cringe. But this was different. It made her catch her breath. It formed like a little knot in her throat. She thought about fleeing, but something about him made her not want to run. She looked up at him. There was something in his eyes. Direct eye contact. She wasn't used to that. Eyes that expressed concern. Eyes that had been looking for her and found her. Eager eyes. Eyes that were glad. Eyes unlike any she'd ever seen. Inviting eyes. Eyes that invoked peace, not panic. Eyes that held her in a compassionate gaze. Hagar... Where have you come from? And where are you going? Didn't this man who knew her name know the answers to these questions? But he wasn't asking to get information. He was asking in order to engage with her heart like he always does. Like he did with the woman at the well. Like he does with you. There was concern in his voice and kindness. She didn't cower, deflect, or hide the truth. She answered simply and honestly, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. She said it as if he knew who Sarai was, because he did. She could have said, who are you? Leave me alone, and made a run for it, but she didn't move. Just a simple, humble, truthful, broken answer from a bankrupt, frightened soul that he was looking right into. And maybe he paused here regarding her pitiful state, understanding and feeling the force of her pain and knowing the sins of so many that had brought her to this desperate point. One more evidence of the broken humanity that would one day lead him to the cross. He took it all in. I'd like Cassidy Ann to come. Cassidy Ann is anointed in writing spoken word and Cassidy Ann would like to Give us her composition today. 
I am here, yet who am I? I am speaking, but I have no voice, no choice in the matter of where I go or what I do. I am laying in the dust, beaten black and blue by a woman whose outburst of anger is long overdue. Who am I? Egyptian, destined to die by prescription because I am a slave forever, nobody's daughter. Half the time I'm petrified to ask for water. My master is cruel. She is bitter and old and she yells at her God because somehow I've struck gold. I've had luck with conceiving. She screams and beats my body as she questions why she ever stood there believing her God was good. Who am I? I am born with no identity, no choice to raise my voice and cry out. I am, without a doubt, alone. I am with child, but who is my mother, my brother, my sister, my lover? Alone. Utterly alone. So, I run. Tie up my long hair and leave before the sun has time to wake. No belongings to take, I just run. The faucets of my eyes have come undone. Who am I? The tears blur my vision and my heart has a head-on collision with the dirt. I am falling. I am sliding into not knowing what is happening. My body on the verge of collapsing, yet I run. I come to see a spring, a well, and there at once my body fell. Do tell me, desert, why do you taunt me? Why do you laugh and mock me? Who am I supposed to be? Abruptly, from my side, I hear a voice. My heart rate begins to rise. I lift my head to see the most kind yet lively eyes. Hagar, they speak my name. A name with no connection to wealth or fame. It is the strongest emotion I have ever felt. They know my name. Where have you come from and where are you going? Beloved, you should no longer be identified with not knowing who you are. You are loved. These words came at me hard like bricks, yet soft like doves. And they speak again. Truly, truly, I tell you, you've not gone far. Hagar, I know who you are. I've listened to your affliction and I've seen your sorrow. The Lord will be with you as you face your tomorrow. Lift your sweet, sweet heart from this sorrow. And at once the terrors of my mind are quieted and the fears of my heart silenced. Who am I that you see me? That you know me? That the lies that I believe don't push you away. I've never felt known this way. I was pushed into the wilderness by my enemies, but pursued here by your love. I am still. I am undone. Because you are the God who sees me. You are the God who believes me. The God that when I was trembling with doubt reached out to touch my face. I think this is what they call grace because I don't deserve it. Now I have purpose. And can I be so bold to call you mine, Abba? Can I be so bold to cling to your side and call you Papa? You are my Abba who sees me, the Almighty who will never leave me. And as I dare to call you mine, you slowly untangle the lies that have danced over me for centuries. You untangle the fear from my knotted hair so I can finally be aware that you are the God who dares to see my fragile frame and call me by name. Hagar, beloved, I am still, I am undone. Thank you so much. That's powerful. This was a tender encounter with the Lord. And he didn't give her an imperative command, but enabling, an enabling directive so laced with his grace that she basically stood up and obeyed him. Return to Sarai and submit to her.
The directive was followed by a promise that indicated his heart for her and her future, as always, plans to prosper and not to harm. I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That is what I'm going to do for you. That is my heart for you. And she believed it and she knew it to be true. If we allow the characters of the Bible to be cardboard, we allow the character, the person of Jesus to be so wooden. We need to engage with Jesus in the word. See his face. Experience him in the word so that he's not just words on a page. And he continues to converse and assure her she's not just the mistaken fix. And that he's holding her life in his control and sovereignty. And ladies, he still is. This whole situation with Ishmael. He is still holding it in his sovereignty. And in his grace. And then he said, you shall call your son Ishmael another first. Which is a stand up and listen. This is the first child God named in the Bible. Ishmael. Interesting. And he had listened. He didn't hear, hear or overhear. He listened to her. Not, and he was seeing and listening to her from the very beginning. Her childhood, her slavery, her separation, her detachment, her hard life of service, being the procreation project of Sarah's scheme, the verbal and the physical abuse and her own response to that. And she was so moved, so absorbed, so drawn in as Cassidy Ann, so beautifully described. She was softened that she dared to do something that no human being in scripture has ever done before. She named God. She named him. She gave him a name. You are the God who sees El Roi. And she knew that she was not a reject, not alone, not out of control, but she was in God's gaze. That was her game-changing moment. God had a plan and it included her. The image bearer in Hagar found the one whose image she bore. And the Azer was lifted from hopelessness to purpose. And that's why she went back and submitted to Sarah. Because she could. She had a divine plan attached to her. She had a divine heart that carried about her. A divine gaze that was fixed on her. And he had a cause for her to advance. He even gave her son a name. He took time with her. He instructed her. He told her what to do. And he gave her a mission. He let her know that she had a future and a hope. Carolyn James writes, After years of slavery, Hagar's return to Sarah was possibly the first truly free act of her life. What do we learn from Hagar? We learn that God in all his omnipotent greatness, the creator of the universe, he is intimately acquainted with all of us. He knows us personally and he knows our names. He's not detached. He's not distant. The creator cares deeply for the ones that he has created. Hagar advanced theology, Carolyn James says, by revealing the intimate side of God. He is the God who never takes his eyes off his child. Hagar introduced God's people to the doctrine of God's omniscience. He not only knows everything, but he knows me. He's the one who sees, not the one who observes. He sees us, who we are, where we came from, our childhood, our lives, our hearts, our thoughts, our pain, our struggle, our brokenness, our futures, our destinies, where we're going. He sees his plans for us. And he listens. He not only sees, but he searches us out. He lets us know that his face is towards us and that his eyes are set upon us. He includes us in his plans. Every single Azer in this room has a divine plan attached to their life. It's written on your scroll. It's written in your book. We talked about that a couple of times ago. He has plans already established for you. He may not tell you everything that's ahead, 
And that's probably a good thing. But he will give us daily steps of obedience as we walk forward in his calling on our lives as women who are willing to advance his purposes and women who take the time to ask him, God, what do you have for me to do? What's your plan? How can I, as an Azer, advance your cause in this generation and in my life and the lives of those I connect with? Whatever the plan there may involve, whether there's discomfort, struggle, or whatever, he gives a promise of encouragement so that we're enabled. What's the Lord saying to us? Are there ways that any of us in this room can relate to Hagar? Invisible, abused, having had an injustice committed against us, wrenched from family, maybe put in foster care or residential schools, as Wendy said. Experienced loss, rejected. Maybe we're in a situation where all we want to do is run into the wilderness just to get away from a situation that's too painful. And the Lord has something that he wants to say to us tonight even in the midst of that darkest situation. In the year 2002, this is a true confession of a pastor's wife, it was a really, really difficult time in the church. I mean, on a scale, it was a 10. I was wrecked. This happens in churches from time to time. You're probably all aware of it, probably all experienced stuff like that. But for me, as a, as, as a pastor's wife, involved in pastoral responsibilities, I was just a complete write-off. I was so done, and I remember sitting in the living room one day pleading with the Lord, please, okay, I have been here for 25 years. It's time to go. Can we go back to Vancouver now? Can we just go back to Vancouver now? 25 years is good, yes? And the Holy Spirit spoke to me because I was serious. I was talking to him. I was asking him, please, can we go? And he said, I want you to turn to Psalm 84. And one of the things he said to me was, blessed are those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Because when they pass through the valley of trouble, they make it a place of springs, a spring. Oh, Hagar. Until each one appears before God in Zion. And I said, pilgrimage, Lord. Yes, move me on. I'm ready to go. And the Holy Spirit said right to my deepest soul, what if pilgrimage for you looks like staying in Winnipeg for the next 25 years? That was kind of like God saying, Hagar, go back to Sarai and submit to her. But with his word comes grace, grace, grace. Because he looks into your eyes and it's an enabling. It's the engagement of heart, the divine heart that has a plan for you that's attached to you. And so no matter what your circumstance is, if he's in it, if his heart is in it, if his heart is for you to stay in it, it's a winner. And I knew that. I knew that in that moment. And I said, okay, whatever, Lord, I'm good with this. And I wasn't just lip servicing. I was saying yes because the grace landed in me to be able to stay. My time's almost up, so I'm going to finish here. Maybe you're here and you have never actually heard God speak your name. I think tonight's your night. I think he's here because, he, and he wants you to hear him speak your name. And then he's going to tell you something else. There will be something attached to that. We'd like to give you some opportunity to hear him tonight. Maybe you've believed that he doesn't see you or that his plans are the best for you and they're better for everybody else and not so much for you. He wants to talk to you about that tonight. And maybe you can't relate to the life of Hagar at all. But again, the Lord is wanting you to learn about him because we're theologians. And this is all about understanding who he is absorbing truth so that it changes our relationship with him and also changes how we live with others to communicate God to others. Our place as Isaiah's is to live our lives under the watchful eyes of the God who sees, walking in his ways, honoring him, 
in temptation, in choosing him or not choosing him, in our relationships, in how we treat our fellow Azeris, in our disappointments, in our responses. He's the God who sees. He wants us to bend and surrender to his will, listening to his voice to do what he tells us to do, knowing his will comes out of his love. And then like Wendy said, as image bearers, to see through his eyes that see and to recognize the invisible ones all around us that he brings across our paths. Because ladies, lest we make this all about ourselves, it's not. And if we come out of this room blessed and enlightened and helped and filled, but we don't go out with his eyes to see the Hagars out there, then we're only halfway there. And we will stunt. Because the plan is far bigger than ourselves. It's to see the others. I remember there was a, um, a few years ago, there was a really bad car accident right here on the Entry, entryway um, at, on Panet Road. And I was on a prep. I was teaching. So I was between classes. And I said, what's going on? There was a bad accident. I looked out there. They said it was a lady. And I looked out, and there was all these men out there. And I said, there's no women out there. So I got my coat on, and because the Lord said, get your coat on and get out there. So I put my coat on, and I went out there. And I was looking around, and I, I went up to this lady. She was standing all by herself. And I went up to her and I said, was that your car? I mean, the airbags had deployed. It was a write-off. It was a totaled car. She was standing all by herself in the cold, icy winter afternoon. And I, I looked at her. I said, are you the lady from the accident? She looked at me. She goes, yes. And I went, oh. And I did this. And she just folded herself into my arms. And then I just held her while she wept. Because what else could she do? And then she let me pray for her. And I could tell her English was so broken. She looked Middle Eastern. Anyway, long story short, her name was Sahar. She was from Iraq. She had fled here as a refugee with her children, escaping, of all things, a polygamous husband. She was a Hagar. She was a first-class Hagar. I asked her if I could have her cell phone number and call her the next day to see if she was okay. And when I phoned her the next day, she wanted me to come to her home immediately for some tea, which I did. I became her first Canadian friend. I was the first Canadian home she'd ever been in, and she'd been here for two years. She's moved back to Iraq since we're still in contact. But I had the opportunity of a lifetime with Sahar. But she was invisible to everybody. Everybody in Winnipeg. And everybody right there at the scene of the accident. Do we have eyes to see? They are everywhere. They're crossing the border. They're living in the streets. And this is what God is calling us to. He wants us to understand his passion for us and his passion for others. Bless you. So just in ending, um, I'd like us just to stand before the Lord. And I hope that he has spoken to many of us tonight. And um, we're going to do what, uh, what we call a little activation and, and that is just to, um, what I'd like us to do is to close our eyes and to just move forward sometimes, or move sideways, or you don't have to do it yet, hang on, don't move forward. So obedient, wow, such great Azares. Um, we're going to just step into his presence, his presence is already here, but we're just going to move forward as, as, a, as a physical act of reaching into him because that's where we live right we are in Christ and to receive something from him tonight we we've had a lot of words and um, a lot of wonderful hopefully group discussions but I just so again I want you to to encourage you to use your imagination use your mind your heart engage every part of yourself as you approach him tonight 
to ask him for something that he wants to give you, something that he wants to say to you. If you haven't already heard that, maybe he's just going to affirm something that he's already said to you tonight. But you need to know that you have a divine God who is attached to you personally. He's very attached to you. His gaze is upon you. He loves you dearly. He knows the plans that he has for you to prosper you, not to harm you. He would never write you off. He didn't write Hagar off. He has a promise. He has fruitfulness for you. And he has something to say to you even in the midst of what might be a deep struggle for you or a situation that you feel like, I just want to get out of this. And he's going to just give it to you like a gift. If I can just encourage you to reach towards him and to receive what it is that he wants to give you, what he wants to say to you, and to just hold that into yourself and receive it from him and thank him for it. And you get to take that home with you and meditate on that and live in the good of it and adhere to the cause of Christ in your life that he wants you personally to advance. He's even going to put some Hagar's in your lives. He's going to open your eyes to see them. There's going to be good fruit that comes out of this. So Elise and I are going to sing a song. So just let it minister to you. And... And then I'm going to ask you just to step forward and just to begin to receive. So this is just going to build your expectation. Lord, I want to hear from you. Let the truth of these words seep deeply into your soul.
given you and place it deep inside your heart. Receive it and thank him for it. It's like digesting what he says. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful, wonderful things you do in our lives. Pray that you would seal Everything that you have spoken tonight, everything that you have done, Lord, we want to go forwards, not backwards. Sir. 
blessed. Take home what he gave you. Meditate on it. Mull it over. Chew it. Enjoy it. And we'll see you in a month. And read the chapter on, I think it's Tamar. I'm pretty sure. So we'll see you next time. Be blessed.